Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. So, Father, we ask you tonight for revelation on the Word of God, and that as we study and we look at this glorious subject, our hearts would come alive. I pray that you give us additional clarity from the Word in our times of reflection later. God, impart this glorious subject into our hearts tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) This is the book of Revelation, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, one of the things that I want to uh, point out is that Jesus has something in mind that we may not necessarily have in mind. And he certainly has it in mind in a far more central way than we have probably been thinking about it. Uh, the, uh, the word in Isaiah 55, verse 9, it's a verse that we know. It's a concept that we know. But I want to relate it to this subject about what I believe is in the burning heart of God in this generation. Isaiah 55, verse 9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I think that the way that we view this hour of history, the way that we view this generation of time, I think is very different than the way that Jesus is viewing this exact same period of time. I think as we're nearing the period of the Great Tribulation, I think our thoughts are going to, uh, to a bunch of details that I think are totally in the background for Jesus. I think when Jesus thinks end times, I'm thinking he's mostly thinking, give me my bride. I think Jesus is actually very much distracted, gloriously and rightly distracted with what he has been promised in relationship to the end time drama. Now, it's not unusual in our culture and in many cultures of the earth for us to view the most important day in a young man's life as his wedding day. That would not be an unusual thought process at all. I want to remind you, Jesus is 33 years old. In his natural body, he's 33 years old. And as a, as a young man who has been promised a bride, who has been in eternity, who's been awaiting this most glorious day, I just think that it is uh, very appropriate that we would imagine this young man as awaiting his most important promised day, uh, just like we would when we, you know, when we marry off, you know, a 20 year old or a 30 year old, you know, in, in, uh, in our culture, just to think about what this means to him. This is a very important day. It is the most important day to him. It's his wedding day. And I think sometimes we, we, uh, accidentally spiritualize it and we make it mean other things that it, it probably does mean, but we extract the wedding component of a young man getting married to his bride in the prime of his life. And that's what's happening here. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting, and uh, you know, I just gave you one or two verses, but there are plenty of examples. One of the ways that Jesus referred to himself while in the flesh was as a bridegroom. He would talk about himself uh, with some measure of frequency as a bridegroom who was awaiting his bride. I don't think that that was accidental. 
He's actually projecting some of his emotions and thoughts and the promises of God that are on his life. He's, he's calling himself a bridegroom as a way for us to identify him, but it's also the way that he's identifying himself. It's the way he sees himself. You know, uh, if you ever talk to a high school football player and you, you ever, you know, meet them out and about and they're, you know, looking all stacked and, and, and bulky and you ask them, you know, hey, you know, so what do you do? Their first answer to the question probably isn't going to be, I'm a student at such and such high school. Their first answer probably isn't going to be, I am a son to my mother and father, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Their first answer is probably going to be, look at me, bro. I'm a football player. I play defensive end or I play, you know, whatever their, their role is. It's a way that they're primarily identifying themselves because they're very much caught up in that's the way they see themselves. That's how they operate. Jesus identified himself frequently as a bridegroom. It's the way he was thinking of himself. He was actually conveying that to people. He very much has his bride in mind. And I just I want you to think about the, <coughs> this is not a perfect picture. It's not a perfect parallel or, or a parable, but it's, it's a start. I want you to think about any medieval story where there's a, a young prince who's betrothed. But right before his wedding, or, or in order to secure the land for his wedding, for his marriage, he has to go off to war. He has to go and fight for his country, for his bride. He has to go fight in order to establish security in the land so that then he can come back and marry his bride and them have safety and him not have to be worried about you know what might uh, come in the future years. He has to go off to war first to fight. And the whole time he's off to war, he's thinking about that prize that he has when he comes home, his bride. That he gets to be with, with the girl of his dreams. He, he gets to have that fulfillment. And again, that's not a perfect picture, but it's not too far off because Jesus is coming to make war in order to be able to secure a comfortable inheritance for his bride. That's very much part of the storyline. Now, we want to merge a couple of perspectives. I already alluded to this a little bit. But I think that <coughs> many times when we think about the end times <clears throat> as those with natural bodies right now in this age, I think many times our minds go to the, uh, the details of the Great Tribulation. We go to the, the, uh, the difficulties and perhaps even some of the battles that will be won in the midst of the Great Tribulation. But I think we're, we're thinking mostly of that as earthen vessels, as people here that are very firmly rooted in this age um, and are thinking about the, the trials that await us. I don't think that that's inaccurate. But I think when Jesus thinks about the end times, when he thinks about what's coming, I think he's mostly considering the victory and the wedding day. And oh yeah, there are some events that must precede that. But it's really in the combination of these two things and the recognition that there can be no victory in the establishment of Jesus as the king overall and the wedding day until there has been that great fight throughout the great tribulation, the release of the judgments and then the final battle. And so it's really those two things coming together. All right, well, top of page two, if you're with me in the notes. This is an interesting um, storyline that is woven together that we find in Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read it, but I just want to give you the title, I think, uh, would be an, an apt title of uh, Revelation 19, 1 through 9, would actually be The Prostitute 
and the bride. Let's read it. Revelation 19.1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. (coughs) The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, amen. And they worshiped God. uh, uh, And they cried, amen. Hallelujah. Then a voice from, uh, came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for the Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true and just words of God. (coughs) I don't know if you caught this. It started off with heaven saying, hallelujah, the prostitute, the false lover, has been judged. Immediately after it says, hallelujah, the wedding of the lamb and of the bride of Christ, the righteous lover, she is prevailing. It's all in the same passage of scripture because we're supposed to understand this climax at the end of the age is the beckoning of two voices to the earth. The beckoning to to be joined with Jesus and be the bride or the beckoning to be joined with the harlot and become part of the prostitute generation. It's these two voices. One will be judged with finality. One will receive the the fullness of her reward with finality. (coughs) So I just broke it down a little bit. The harlot will be judged. Next. All of heaven praises the end of Babylon. All of heaven rejoices. Because she has been the great liar, the deceiver. She has been the, the false version of, uh, of the bride. She has been one who's been promising eternal riches. You know, that, that passage, um, you know, that we see in, in uh, uh, Revelation, I believe it's three, about you claim that you are, uh, you know, uh, pure and spotless, but do you not see that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? Buy from me pure gold. It's out for your eyes. And it's, it's that uh, beckoning to the generation because there's a, there's a generation that's buying into the lies and the falsehood of, uh, of all that the harlot offers. And then there's the church that's walking in the righteousness of God and all that, uh, that he offers. <coughs> all of heaven then rejoices in the wedding of the king. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude shouting, hallelujah. It's the the multitude of heaven. The same multitude that just a moment ago was rejoicing the removal and the judgment of Babylon, the harlot, is now rejoicing over the uh, the moment of the bride and uh, of the, the lamb coming together. Also, I think it's interesting that I think the global focus... In Revelation 19.9, we see uh, the angel, he says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. 
And he added, these are the true words of God. Now, it's kind of a given that you would be blessed if you're invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And it's kind of a given that if God is saying it, it must be true. I think all of this is supposed to serve as a double exclamation point about the focus for the final generation. You want to be one who is invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You do not want to be in that alternative camp. And the majority of the generation will be in the alternative camp. You want to be one that is giving your focus and your attention to be one that walks with the Lord and gets that invitation at the end of the age. I think it's just a really profound way to end that passage of nine verses about the prostitute and the bride, this back and forth. And he, he ends with this. He says, listen, I'm telling you the sum of all things. You want an invitation to be part of that wedding supper at the end of the age. These are just and true words. These are right. The Bible is written to the church, not written to lost people. And so when we read Revelation 19.9, it's supposed to cause us to get all the more resolve in our spirit to go, I am gonna, I'm going to make it my aim to love him with all my heart. I'm also going to make it my objective to be discerning, to discern the ways of the false lover because she is rising in this generation and her allure is great. But I will be one that focuses myself on the ways of the Lord. I was on the phone uh, with somebody earlier today. And I was, I was praying as I was having the conversation because I, I wasn't exactly sure what the Lord wanted me to do in this situation. Um, it was somebody that I, I don't have much of a relationship with. And they were talking about uh, how the Lord has been leading them in this way and that. And, uh, and, I, and I've had maybe two conversations with this person in the last number of years. So I don't have a strong relationship. They were talking about, you know, uh, the way that the Lord's been leading them this way and that. And then they were talking about how uh, their girlfriend had moved in with them uh, during COVID and how they've been living together and uh, they want to get married, you know, one day, but that they haven't yet. And I was just, I, and, and with this person with such confidence was talking about both the Lord and how they had completely given themselves into compromise. They had completely bought into the systems of the world. They completely bought in that it was totally fine to cohabitate. It's totally fine to sleep with someone that you're not married to. It's totally not okay. It, it, but that's the world that we live in. It's this, this commingling of the littering of the name of Jesus and, and uh, things of, of, uh, of you know, God and of the Bible, yet still choosing to live however we want and really living in march, in step with the spirit of this age. That's the kind of line of demarcation. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It will not be those that have lived in fornication. It will not be that way. We have got to walk in righteousness. We've got to repent of sin. You can repent of any sin, but you can't keep living in it. That will not work. And there is a generation that is being told, it's fine to live in sin and still believe that you're well and good. No, blessed are those who will actually receive a invitation to the wedding supper of the lamb. We've got to be those that set our minds and our eyes and our focus and our gaze. The church made ready. This is uh, part three. Revelation uh, 19, seven through eight. We were just reading this, but I just want to give a little recap because we're going to spend a moment on it. The wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. I love this passage. There is so much meat in this. I just want to spend a couple of minutes unpacking this. First, it says that the bride has made herself ready. She did it to herself 
of her own choosing, of her own participation. It doesn't say God made her ready, though that would also be accurate. This is the focus in this passage is not actually on God's preparation. It's actually on her own preparation. It's her focus on righteousness. It's her focus on her bridegroom. It's her focus on what would please him, a lifestyle that would be pleasing. It's a focus on how to get that wedding invitation at the end, just a verse later. Blessed are those who receive the wedding invitation of the Lamb. Uh, It's a focus, and she makes herself ready. That is, she's self-prepared. In a generation where wickedness will be rising, she is self-preparing. She has made herself ready. I just love that phrase. I think it's so important for us. And I'll just give you just a little hint for those of you who are like me, that you struggle, you've got issues that you're still working through. If you just keep trying, if you refuse to quit and give in to those sinful ways, if you keep pressing forward, he looks at you, he says, well done, and he'll give you more grace. He gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. If you'll be humble and you'll keep asking him for more, he'll keep giving you more. That's what the process of make ready looks like. It doesn't mean live sinless. I've never met anyone who's pulled that off yet. What it does mean is live fully repentant and live engaged and live re-upping and saying, God, I want your ways. I want your, your fullness. I want to walk in righteousness. I repent for this thing that I did. And they press forward a generation that will make themselves ready. The trials of the great tribulation will help very much to prepare this bride. Top of page four. (coughs) The pressures of the trial will help prepare her. Nothing produces love for God quite like difficulty. It also can cause people to decide they want to bail. And honestly... You really, you, you would way rather have a relationship with someone who has had plenty of chances to bail on you and has chosen not to because they like you better. They like you better than bailing. They like you better than the promises of the grass is greener. They like you better than just relieving the pressure uh, of whatever it is. That's actually a far stronger love than initial infatuation or initial, you know, friendship introduction. It's tested love. The great tribulation will create the greatest context for tested love. That trial will help prepare the bride to be a holy, righteous, and fully in love uh, uh, bride with Jesus. I gave you Revelation 9, I'm sorry, Revelation 13, 9 through 10, because I think it's part of the picture of what is, will be part of the preparation. Uh, top of page four, whoever has ears, let them hear. This is, <laughs> this is uh, the spirit of the Lord speaking to the church. Really important that we understand this. If anyone in the church is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people, the church. The church needs to be prepared to walk through great difficulty, martyrdom, captivity, whatever it takes. And it's going to call for great patience and great endurance on the part of the saints. And as we endure it, our love for him will strengthen, will deepen, and will be, will be beautiful. Fine linen was given to her. Now, there's layers to what that means. But one of the things that that fine linen means 
is it's it's the uh, the clothing of royalty. It's richness. It it speaks of the reward of of now being in that royal position. What else does it mean? Well, it says that they're bright and clean. These clothes that are given to wear. <coughs> That speaks of the righteous standing that the church has before God. She's taken the righteousness of Christ. And she's now walked through the trials. And she comes out victorious and holy on the other end. She's wearing garments that are a reflection of righteousness. But this, these garments are given to her. The reason I think that that's an important statement is because God doesn't make mistakes. So if the garments are given under God's care, they are given and it's right that when she puts them on, when the bride is wearing, when the church is wearing these garments, these white and holy garments, it's not an accident, it's not false, there's no place for accusation, it's accurate, it's true, it's God-given. But it says, I don't know if you caught this, that the, the white linen garments stand for the righteous acts of the saints. So here's what that tells me. It's more than imputed righteousness. It's more than just the saints are now wearing the white garments of Jesus's blood covering them. That is true. But it says that these garments stand for their righteous actions. Their righteous thoughts, their righteous motives, their righteous perspectives, the things that they did, their actions for the righteous acts of the saints. Now, I think about that, and I think about the period of the Great Tribulation. I think about what about the church operating in all nine fruit of the Spirit at a level 10 while being martyred? while being persecuted, blessing their enemies, forgiving, offering, uh, you know, cover and protection and help to, to all those that are in need, right in the righteous acts. And it says that she's given these uh, garments to wear by the Lord. And now on the day of the wedding of the lamb, she's wearing them. She's wearing the righteous acts. It's a statement. It's a proclamation. So everyone that sees heaven, earth, hell, demons, angels, men, everybody, they're seeing this, these righteous garments on the church and that these garments are not only his righteousness, but their righteous acts in symbolic representation so that when people see them, they go, oh man, that shirt you're wearing reminds me of that thing that you did a year ago. Oh man, that's beautiful. Oh, I, dude, I like those pants, those pants, bro. I remember that thing that you did back there in the trenches, man. That was tough stuff. I remember the righteous acts of the saints. See, because that's what those garments are actually representing is the righteousness of those that have just walked through the great tribulation in the full fruit of the spirit. This is awesome. This is the wedding of the lamb. Okay, let's look at just a little bit of the timing of what's happening here. The wedding of the Lamb has finally come. I love this phrase. Revelation 19.7, top of page 5. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Now, if you're a four-living creature in heaven right now, you know this day is coming. And you know Jesus is really jazzed about it. And if you're a myriad of angels, up around the throne, 
you are well aware that there is a time clock ticking down to the wedding of the Lamb. If you're John the Baptist up there right now, you are aware that this bridegroom is awaiting his wedding day. Everyone in heaven knows. The Father knows. You better believe Jesus knows. There is a long-awaited moment of the wedding of the Son of God, the King of heaven, the King of the earth. It's long-awaited day, and it's never happened and it finally comes. This is the finality. The, the day finally comes. His favorite day. I just want to encourage you to spend some time in this prayer room crying through that idea. Jesus' favorite day. The day of the wedding of the Lamb. And it's finally come. Well, when does this happen? It happens after the church makes herself ready. So that's an important detail related to the timing. It will not occur until after the church has made herself ready. And the way that the church makes herself ready is in the context of the Great Tribulation. After the seventh bowl, just another little timing thing as we've been going through the, you know, the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Well, when does this wedding happen? It happens after the seventh bowl is over. It happens after the Armageddon campaign. It happens after... Israel receives Jesus as Messiah. Israel sees Jesus. Now remember the way that the context of the final battle goes, you've got Israel inside the, the gates of Jerusalem and the armies are mounting outside and they're coming to destroy Jerusalem to finally take out and remove Jerusalem from the face of the earth, remove God's chosen people, that there would be no more Israel, the eradication of God's people line. The nations are gathered outside the gate in order to come in and take out Israel. And Israel is freaked out of their mind. Those that are in Jerusalem, they are shaken in their boots genuinely, and they cry out to God for help, the God of their ancestors. I mean, you know, they, they say that there's no atheists in foxholes. You're talking about an entire group of Israel that whatever their upbringing has been, they're going to cry out to God for help, and they are going to be so shocked when God answers with the Christian Jesus as their Jewish Messiah. And they see him and they go, whoa, we were wrong? He is our Messiah. And the, I mean, scriptures are going to start coming to mind. They're going to start encouraging one another. There's going to be such a revelation. He's our Messiah. We called out to Jehovah and Jehovah answered with Yeshua. He gave us Jesus. Oh, gee, oh no. I mean, there's all this traffic that's going on in their mind and in their spirit. And they're going to cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus said, Matthew 23, verse 39, to the Jews in Jerusalem, he said, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they'll say it. They will say it. And then he will be their king. He will be their Messiah. They will receive him. This is all part of the glorious reality of the wedding of the lamb. All this happens, and it's right before the millennium starts. The millennium actually gets jump-started, gets kicked off with a wedding. Yeah. What a fun way to start a thousand years with Jesus is a wedding. All right, well, what's going on at this feast? I think there's a lot of... Uh, 
a lot of pondering that we could do, a lot of verses that we could find to get uh, deeper insight. Let's call this a 101 teaching on the wedding supper of the Lamb. But let's look at what goes on at this feast. First, it's a recognition of the King. Look at Psalm 2, verse 6, and then Psalm 24. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Well, that hasn't happened in even remote fullness yet. That is not, I mean, only in the most spiritual of senses has Jesus been established as king of the earth on Mount Zion, on the holy mountain. But that will have just occurred. That will be very much part of what's happening at this wedding feast. It's not just a wedding supper. It's a coronation ceremony. Jesus is being crowned king of the planet in the midst of all this. <coughs> Look at Psalm 24, 7 through 10. We know the passage, but just think about it in this context. Be lifted up that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Won't he have just proved that? Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. The king of glory is coming. He's being coronated here at this wedding ceremony. Big, big important detail. It's a wedding. It's not just a party. It's a wedding. There is going to be a wedding at this wedding supper. A wedding. Like a ceremony. Like a, do you take, you know, do you? I do. I mean, there is going to be a wedding ceremony at this wedding supper of the Lamb. <coughs> and I don't have all those details figured out. But I just want to remind us, Matthew 25, verse 1 this is Jesus. He stuck these kind of he snuck these details in all the time, talking about what was coming. Matthew twenty five verse one. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like something. You want to know what that kingdom of heaven will be like? It will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Because it's a time period that's described as the coronation of the next age, the kingdom age, the thousand year reign, the millennium. At that time, the kingdom, the millennium, will be like. It will be like a wedding moment. <clears throat> it will be like the, the beginning of the most glorious season of time. And there's uh, these uh, descriptions again and again of it being like a wedding. Because it's not like a wedding. There is going to be a wedding take place. Right now, the church is the betrothed to Jesus, bride of Christ. But we're actually going to have a moment of wedding where that will no longer be betrothal. It will be full and actual and realized. <coughs> there will be great rejoicing. Look at this. Look at all the hallelujahs here in Revelation 19. I just kind of, just a little snapshot here. I just gave them to you. You can, you can see it there. There's going to be great rejoicing about what has been and is no longer, about what is now, and about what will, what will be in the future, there is great rejoicing. Jesus will rejoice. Not just us, not just the angels. I just give you this verse out of Isaiah 62. Another one of those ways that the Holy Spirit wove into the storyline the emotions of Jesus. Look at this. 
as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. This is the moment that Jesus has been long awaiting. (coughs) And he is filled with joy and he rejoices. He rejoices just like a young man on his married on his wedding day. That's the rejoicing Jesus will have on that day. Jesus adores his bride. He looks at her. And it's it's unbelievable. Psalm 45 verse uh, 11 top of page 7. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him for he is your lord. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Let Jesus be enthralled by the beauty of the church. Enthralled. Well, if we needed it again, Song of Solomon 4, 9 through 10 just says it so beautifully, so poetically. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace, How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. No truer moment in history than the affections of Jesus on the wedding day. This verse (coughs) has had meaning forever. It has never had as much meaning as it will have in that moment. When Jesus looks at his bride, he looks at us and he doesn't look and go, sup girl. He sees us and he's enthralled with our beauty. We have made ourselves ready. It says with one glance of our eyes, we look at him, he's ravished. He sees us, he's enthralled. His heart is stolen in that moment. (coughs) This is the day he's been long awaiting and it's finally here. Well, who is this bride? The bride is from all the nations, every nation. No nation doesn't make it. Everybody's on the list. God loves all peoples. He loves every ethnicity, every people and language and territory and culture. He loves them. Revelation 5, 9, with your blood you purchased for God. (coughs) Persons from every tribe, every language and people and nation. Look at Revelation 7. Therefore before me was a great multitude and no one could count it. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Why do I point this out? Well, one, I want us to recognize every people group on the earth is precious to Jesus. And every people group will have representation in the bride on the last day at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Every people group, without question, it's done. I like that point, I really like that point. But for some reason, every hungry part of me is enthralled by the ramifications of what that means. Because if you've got people from every people group at the wedding, and the wedding is described as the wedding supper, meaning food, that means we are going to have delicacies from 
every single cultural expression in human history. We're going to have expressions of food from every people group, every tribe language. Can you imagine how unfortunate, how offensive it would be? Somebody from wherever, pick a country, they show up to the wedding supper of the lamb and they're like, what is all this? Where I, I can't even pronounce any of this food. What is this? And they don't have anything that's a representation of the cultural food that they grew up eating. I guarantee you, every food will be represented at that meal, at that banquet. Everybody. And we'll all be cross-eating and doing this and introducing each other to stuff and eating all kinds. It's going to be great. I mean, pizza with baklava. It's going to be awesome. We're just, we're going to do it all. All the nations of the earth are going to have food representation at this wedding banquet because this wedding banquet is a wedding banquet of all the people groups. Okay? <coughs> Gave a few points here. Getting close to the end here, bottom of page seven. These are just a few thoughts of mine. The food will presumably have been cooked in heaven. It's a lot of food that's going to be there. I mean, you're talking about, let's just call it two billion people and... I don't know how many angels. I don't know how all that works. A lot. So let's go ahead and call it a billion angels because I need a number. And two billion people because I need a number. Three billion hungry people that have just been fighting a battle. And they've been warring. And, and when you go to war and you come back, you're, you're hungry. So they're ready to eat. They are not going to get one bite each. This is not like one Chick-fil-A chicken nugget per person and you're done. Okay? <laughs> Uh, we're talking about a thousand chicken nuggets per, and it's a nugget from every cultural representation. There is so much food. Where does this food come from? How does this food magically appear? I have no idea. I, I mean, the only thing I can figure is before heaven empties out, all the angels have been on full-time cooking detail for the previous three weeks. They've just been cooking, 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 preparing, getting it all ready. Because when this happens, the wedding supper of the Lamb is able to feed, again, three billion people and angels or something. Some big number. This is a ton of food. The food will be vast and an international spread of entrees. The food will be gourmet, the best you've ever tasted. Can you just imagine showing up for the wedding supper of the Lamb and you're like, eh, I've had better. I don't think so. I just don't think so. I think our minds are going to be blown. Plus, it's the first time we've been able to try out a resurrected tongue. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. I'm using mine. The food will be of unbelievable measure and quantity. I mean, just of every sort, every... Oh, it's going to be so much. Now, we'll end with this. This is the starting point for a new age of human activity. The millennium that follows, it's not like we have the wedding supper of the lamb and then we push delete and now everything that follows is just like ethereal and floating in clouds. We go from the wedding supper of the lamb, which is about the most tactile thing I can possibly imagine, a wedding, food, celebration, the king. I mean, we go from the most tactile moment imaginable to start the thousand year reign of Christ. That's the beginning point. So whatever else we might imagine about the age to come, it needs to have in mind this wedding ceremony, all the details, because it's this with a resurrected body it's that lifestyle, it's that kind of reality that is going to be carried on in the coming years uh, that follow in the, the thousand-year reign of Christ. 
Okay. Well, at this point, we're going to break up into groups. Luke, how many groups we got tonight? Four groups of seven to eight. Four groups of seven to eight. Okay. And who are my group leaders? One, two, three, and Andy in the back. Uh, Luke can, yeah, over here, and then, wait, yeah, Cooper here, Fredenberg, you're good, and then Caitlin there. Actually, Caitlin, come this way a little bit. All right, and then Andy will be in the back. So get in groups of what, seven to eight, I think is what was said, and uh, then we'll circle back for a time of Q&A here in a little bit. Yeah. So the, uh, the parable of the wedding banquet that Jesus tells in Matthew 22, uh, what's going on there? How does it relate to the wedding supper of the lamb? So I'm just going to read the, the, uh, end of it there. Um, <coughs> starting in verse eight, he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I have invited did not deserve to come. So the, uh, the initial, uh, um, statement here is actually being related to the Jews that have rejected him. And he says, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. If you want to know where your standing is, you're anyone who could be found. (laughs) You Gentiles. Uh, Me too. Um, We are anyone who could be found. So the servants went out to the streets and they gathered all the people that they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with the guests. When the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king uh, told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many invited, but few are chosen. Uh, The way that I've always pictured this uh, from a uh, fairly literal sense is there are actually going to be those that have not yet been uh, uh, rounded up from all over the place and executed. Uh, They have not yet been executed. All of those that were in the armies have been executed. All of them, it says Jesus pulls the sword out of his mouth, Revelation 19, and he slays all the wicked. But there are still going to be those that uh, have not, um, uh, that, are, that are going to be slain, that have not yet been slain. That happens. That takes some time. That occurs in the 45 days that follow this period of time. And so I've always pictured this actually have being one of those that are reprobate, that somehow have wandered into the camp of where this is happening because they still have feet, they can still walk, uh, but they, if they weren't part of the army, they have not yet been slain, their execution is still impending. Uh, so I've always pictured this as one of those guys, uh, which is a reasonable thought that there'll be somebody that wasn't in the army but was within walking distance, saw this great wedding supper, cool, can't wait to be a part of that, that sounds awesome, walks over, it's like, no. No, in fact, let's tie him up and execute him and throw him in the lake of fire. Uh, because that's actually going to be the, uh, the fate of all of those who have uh, taken the mark of the beast um, and whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, which again, all the resistors, their names have been written, but they had not yet received Jesus until he came. So, uh, so this is one of the reprobate. Has, that's how I've always read it. So um, great question. Uh, Luke. Great question. So in relationship to uh, the father of the groom uh, being at a wedding, that's a very you know, natural thought process. So we've got God the Father. Where is he at in this wedding? I don't know, but I have some ideas. Um, 
And so I would just encourage you to read your Bible and check these ideas and see if they ring true to you. Um, we have the occasion where out of heaven, the father thunders to the earth and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So it's very, uh, a very real thing that the father can interact with the earth where humans on the earth can both sense his presence and hear his voice. And, uh, and so the father's coming to the earth, I think is completely um, tied to the the renovations that are going to happen under the guarding of Jesus during the millennial kingdom. I don't think that the Father can return to the earth until after the thousand-year period and Jesus has established his kingdom of righteousness and the final rebellion of Satan has happened and all the wicked at that point are purged and now sin is done with. I think that's the only time that the Father can return to the earth. So I think that he can't in physical form be on the earth for this reality. Now, what we also know is it's during this period of time, and I don't have the timing on this perfect, related to the initial descent of the New Jerusalem to the earth. And it happens in two phases. We don't have time to touch on that now. Don't worry, we'll, plen we'll spend plenty of time on it in future sessions. But the New Jerusalem, heaven, descends to the earth in two phases. The first phase is up above the earth, somewhere in like orbital proximity, you know, but close enough that like we can see it and it's, it provides shade for Jerusalem and a few other things, but it's not physically on the earth. Second descent after the millennium, after there has been perfection of all things, then the, uh, then heaven comes to physically descend and lands on the earth, true heaven on earth after the thousand years. So we don't know exactly when this initial descent occurs. What we do know is the initial descent of the new Jerusalem is referred to as, come, John, let me show you the bride. And he refers to the descent of the new Jerusalem as the bride. And you can go find that in Revelation 21, 22. But it's initial. So I think there's actually something there in relationship to this epic bride moment where the church is being wed to Jesus. I think that there's something in relationship to that that I haven't unpacked, but I would encourage you to go uh, kind of chew on that passage in relationship to this question uh, with relationship to the Father's proximity, what is his vo uh, viewpoint. Also, the question might well be asked, who is the uh, officiator of this wedding? You know, one, one might want to know who gets that honor. Is that David? I don't know. I mean, who, who gets to do this? Who is the guy officiating the wedding? Um, don't have that all thought through. So as I said, I don't know the answer to the question, but I do think that there's some mystery that could be uh, chewed on in relationship to the, the wedding of the lamb and the timing of this, the descent of the new Jerusalem where the father is at and the descent of the new Jerusalem, John is being told, come John, let me show you the bride. And it's, he's now talking about New Jerusalem. He's not talking about the church. It's a very interesting little paradigm there. So I think there's something there to be understood that I don't understand yet. Uh, yeah. So the, uh, the question is, <coughs> where does this occur? And the second is, how long does this last? Next session... I, I kind of did this backwards on purpose. I toyed back and forth with, do I do the wedding supper of the lamb first or do I do the great supper of God first? The great supper of God will be our next session. 
but chronologically, it actually occurs right before the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that gives you the context of where the wedding supper of the Lamb occurs. And so I'm going to save the answer to that question for next session uh, because we are going to talk very much about how these two things relate. It just for me as a teacher, I thought it would be more fun, easier to reference back to the wedding while talking about the uh, the great supper of God as opposed to vice versa. So we'll touch on that next week. How long does this last? A long time. This is not over in 15 minutes. I don't know how long. I, uh, days, weeks, I, who knows exactly what is going on here. There is a lot of activity that has to occur in a 45 period day of uh, 45 day period of time. <clears throat> and this is one of those 45, uh, one of those things that has to occur in that 45 days, but it's not the only thing. So I am sure some Jewish scholar would know the right answer. How long should the Jewish wedding feast be? You know, I mean, whatever that is, is probably the answer. Uh, it would just be my guess. Um, but, but this is going to be a long thing. I mean, you're talking about how long does it take to, to feed three billion angels and humans. I mean, that's just, and then to toast, and then, to, I mean, just there's just so much. This is not going to be a short thing. It's going to go on for days, if not weeks. This Jesus is not in a hurry to get his wedding supper over with, okay? In fact, he's probably trying to find ways to drag it out. You know, Father, can we go just a couple more days? I mean, and who knows what the father, if, if Jesus asked the father in that moment for a few more days, I think the father would be inclined to give him whatever he asked for. So I think we need to be thinking about this as a long, drawn out, beautiful, enjoyed, you know, days on days kind of a thing as opposed to any sort of expedited uh, uh, situation. Final question. Why do I think that Texas is the clear winner for the fatty meats at the wedding supper of the lamb? Wow, the, the cornering. Uh, Isaiah 25, verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. Uh, yes, Isaiah 25 verse 6 is very much about the wedding supper of the Lamb. <laughs> Uh, why will Texas win? Because we are so haughty. We believe that it will. And we're also men and women of faith that pray. So that is why Texas will win the great barbecue cook-off at the end of the age by our haughtiness and our faith and intercession. Okay. All right. Well, great, guys. These are, these are rich questions. These are good. We're diving in deep. This good worship team, worship leader. Thanks, Tyler. Um, guys, I'm, I am enjoying watching you feast on these passages and gain revelation and gain insights. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.